Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. Finally, finally, we are up and rolling. I'm sure it had nothing to do with us. I'm sure it was just one of those lovely technical glitches that just happens to happen uh, on occasion. Ryan just got back from the border, so he is joining us today. He is trying to stream. Man, we we tried this, folks. I'm telling you. We started launching this thing five minutes before our normal time, only to find out that we were going to be running 25 minutes late, as you are seeing us live now. Uh, if you are not watching our Rumble channel, and if you just happen to be tuning into the audio, or if you're watching this on replay, what you missed was a lot of mess. We saw some dark streams. We saw some audio only. We saw some nothing. Um, we had to restart the stream. So many of you are seeing this in a weird delay. And of course, we lost most of our audience there, but so be it. Uh, some of you are worried about my mood and offered me peanuts. I actually keep my own peanuts. I keep my own peanuts right here on the desk, just in case. So we are rocking and rolling here. It is August the 16th. It is a Wednesday, and we are going live from Liberty Hill, Texas right now, just about 25 minutes late. Sorry about all of those things. We will do our best again. We're going to be talking about counterintelligence today. I'm sure that's not a triggering topic for the FBI. We're going to be talking about counterintelligence agents, what they do, what kind of cases have been run, a couple of them that uh, are notable that have been prosecuted already that I can talk about. We're going to go through the indictment of Charles McGonigal. We're going to be talking about the one that he just pled guilty to and what he has not pled guilty to yet, and we'll find out what that's all about. Um, it seems like the media, it tends to either be distracted by shiny objects or they are running top cover, and I can't tell which. Either one is plausible in this sort of mainstream media Operation Mockingbird scenario, something that uh, that seems to be Seems to be going on with a lot of this stuff. I'm seeing a, a lot of media obsession with things that are not the real story. So we're going to dig into that just a little bit. And uh, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the contrast of the previously top FBI uh, violator of the oath, let's say, in, in Robert Hansen. All right. Before we do that, let's say thanks to Catholic Vote. Those people are keeping the lights on here. And you know what's fun? Catholic Vote actually had a mishap this morning as well. There is no loop in my email despite the fact that i promised you a loop every day if you sign up for the loop there's no loop in the email and i went into the slack chat for the catholic vote folks i have an email address with them and i, I get to peripherally be involved in the organization and i looked in there and there were 20 people saying where's the loop so in the same way that you were wondering where's the kyle seraphin show they were wondering where's the loop here they are check them out You'll get the loop tomorrow, I guess. Maybe it'll come later on in the day. Maybe you can sign up in time to get today's loop. Go to catholicvote.org, catholicvote, that's V-O-T-E, catholicvote.org. Put in your email address, your name, your zip code, and get the email when they send it. And uh, they blamed it on a new guy. That's what they're saying. New guy was uh, running the scheduling program, and it failed to send. So maybe it will send a little bit later in the day. That being said, great people. We do appreciate them. And we're going to have some new promos for our friends over at uh, Patriot Coolers, but check them out as well. Go to patriotcoolers.com. Use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E, promo code Kyle. Get you 10% off. There's some of the cool stuff that they have as far as the first responder and veteran gifts, good looking flags, specific to EMS, to law enforcement, to those who have been in the military. Here is one of my Patriot Coolers. My wife loaded this one up. This one's got a sticker of my buddy's soft unit over in the Air Force. Uh, that's my dead air sticker because i like dead air suppressors rolled with me in a lot of states that thing has been with me probably in 18 or 20 different states maybe more at this point because i take a patriot cooler with me when i travel use promo code kyle get your own promo code kyle gets you 10 percent off free shipping over 50 bucks you guys know the deal all right see a lot of you guys sending the uh the super chats over there sending the rumble rants baby's gonna get new shoes baby is not here yet folks baby is pending Baby is pending. Let's go ahead and launch into the show here without any further ado. Let's talk about Operation Gray Day, which was the Robert Hansen case, and Codename Werewolf, which sounds really lame. We bring up uh, topic number one, Ryan, and let's rock and roll. This was an article that was written on spyscape.com. You can see their generic uh, sort of just footage of uh, FBI agents moving things out of a box. I don't know why they always think people are taking, why would you take a computer monitor? That's a silly picture. That looks staged on every level. There is nothing in the computer monitor that we are taking. I don't need that computer monitor. Uh, this is the story of uh, 
of FBI agent Eric O'Neill, who was recruited when he was a new agent. One of the stories that happened, one of the issues that happened when you have a mole hunt internally is that you've got to figure out, is there a way to get involved with the agent who is in fact selling out the FBI without alerting them? And generally speaking, the problem is, is that they usually have a lot of friends. I know that Charlie McGonigal's situation was a lot of people owed him favors. A lot of people owed him uh, some pieces of their career. As we heard from our friend Steve Gray on this very program, Steve Gray, who used to work with him both at headquarters and the New York field office, Steve said uh, that uh, Charlie McGonigal was really big on collecting favors. What he would do is he would find a disciplinary action that should have been taken, and he would kind of give that person a pass knowing that they would owe him something in the future. And that can be a good management technique. It can be shady. In the case of McGonagall, it sounds like it was nothing but shadiness. So um, if, we'll, if we scroll down through this article, what we find out is that they basically went out and recruited this guy, Eric O'Neill, and they gave him codename Werewolf because of apparently something he did at the Quantico Bar. Many, many careers launched with shady stories at the boardroom, as they call it, the bar at Quantico. Apparently, this guy uh, was uh, throwing his head back and howling at the moon, so that gave him this this uh, nickname of Werewolf. And, and then Gray Day was the call sign for the case. And the reason I tell you the call sign specifically is that everybody in the FBI thinks that they're doing really cool stuff, catching spies. They all want to have codename cases. And, you know, it's things like uh, Angry Snail or, uh, you know, Fiery Squirrel. They have these silly things. They have lists. I've seen them. There's automatic generated uh, case names that you can have and the computer spits them out. Or what they'll have is agents will just sit around when they're doing nothing because it's standard federal work and they will uh, literally like game out. What will be the code name of my cool case that I get and how, and, you know, what sounds the coolest? It's as nerdy as, th as you think it is. I mean, it literally is as nerdy as it sounds. <laughs> so Operation Gray Day was uh, was um, the, the, the operation that went against O'Neill. Here's the other funny thing. Everybody always wants to trump up their capabilities. We're going to be having a really interesting interview, and I hopefully this is not interrupted by some of the weird technical glitches we had today. We're going to be interviewing somebody in Moscow this afternoon, Ryan and I will, and we'll try to play it for you tomorrow. That's going to be the plan. And the, the surveillance specialists that work for the FBI, I was an agent specialist. We call them SOG or the Special Operations Group. They used to be called Mobile Surveillance something mobile surveillance team, armed mo mobile surveillance team, not armed. They had these different names. There are two different varieties of it. Some of them are armed, they're agents. Some of them are security specialists or, or surveillance specialists. And they love to call themselves the ghosts. I've seen this in multiple different articles. By the way, nobody in the FBI calls them ghosts. They're known as SSG. And they are a mixture of young, capable people who have no work experience that go to a like a 12-week surveillance course and they learn how to follow people around that aren't armed and are not dangerous. And theoretically, they're just gathering intelligence on them. And then the other group of them are people that are armed. We have a much shorter academy because surveillance is actually kind of part of the uh, the, the regular FBI academy. And so we go through and we follow people that are armed and uh, and people that are potentially dangerous. And so we can have national security targets on occasion, generally not. But if you happen to have like, let's say a Green Beret who's doing something and, and giving away information, that's a, a, just something off the top of my head that I remember we worked. If you have another um, law enforcement officer that's involved in potentially doing some national security failings, if they work for another agency, if they work for the FBI, then you tend to get the, uh, you'd, end, you'd end up with the agents on it because that person may actually have a gun. But they love to call these people ghosts. They like to have these cool case names. And I'm saying all this because a lot of this stuff is cosplay. If you've listened to the show, you know that a lot of what the FBI does is federal law enforcement cosplay. And the danger of cosplay that has real guns with this sort of silly attitude and this danger is that, or this uh, sort of um, loose grip on what it is that they're actually doing is that sometimes they actually do get into the real scenario. And if you were following the chat in our, our previous stream, which we had to reboot, Garrett Boyle came in and told us that his friends who are in Memphis, got an email today. The FBI has killed yet another person. It'll probably be justified. That's usually how it works. It's almost always justified when the SWAT teams get into a shooting. But the question should really be, are they provoking it through some of this cosplay by showing up and kicking down doors like they think there's some sort of uh, elite counterterrorism force or they're, you know, they're, they're SEAL Team 6 overseas why are we going into these houses at 06 a.m.? It never made sense at the academy. In fact, the legal instructors that I had, a guy named Mike Bolzomi, who was kind of legendary for sitting at the academy forever, he was one of those great presenters. He said, why is it that we always go into houses at 6 a.m.? And the answer, he answered his own question was, because, because that's what we've always done. Because the FBI gets involved in doing the same thing that they've always done. That's cosplay. 
that is playing instead of adapting to modern techniques. Whereas most SWAT teams are now involved in surround and call out, the FBI is still kicking down doors and going after people. And, uh, and it's incredibly dangerous. And of course, it's resulted in, in the last seven days, literally today is Wednesday. So in the last seven days, we have had three people killed by the FBI. And I would not be surprised to find more of this. Part of that is the political culture that we have going on. And part of it is because they won't adapt their techniques. So we'll talk a little further about Hansen here. If you guys don't know the story of Robert Hansen, he started spying on the FBI for the Russians at least as early as 1985, and he got people killed. He was giving information over to the KGB, and he continued doing this after the fall of the Soviet Union under the uh, the, the Russian Federation. He kill he like got people killed, and he kept doing this for his whole career. And the reason that they ended up having this rush is because they were afraid he was going to be able to retire before they were able to get him. Does that sound familiar? It should sound familiar because a story of Char Charlie McGonagall is they didn't get him until after. They didn't get him until much further after he was already outside of the FBI. Are we not concerned about this? Let's go on to topic number two here. This is the, the story. Robert Hansen died in prison, folks. That's what it comes down to. Okay. He... He died in prison, and the only way that they were able to catch him was after almost 20 years of him leaking top secrets, uh, top secret information to the Russians. The, the FBI is not good at this, you know? And this is the thing that should most, most people should be most concerned about. They have, uh, this is telling you that in December of 2000, there's this uh, FBI agent, Richard Garcia. He gets a, a visit from somebody at the Russia desk saying, hey, hey, you know Robert Hansen? You know him? No, good, because you're about to. They had to literally go through the bureau and find people that didn't know the guy in order to do this operation. Um, what you're seeing on the screen right now is, is reporting from the BBC. Uh, they're letting us know that, you know, this is an old case, obviously this happened, but they're still reporting on it because we're dealing with the, the new story of our man, Charlie McGonagall. Will you pull up, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. Will you pull up the New York indictment? That is going to be topic number five. I want to read from the New York indictment, folks. This is the one that we just heard that just got pled out. He's facing up to five years based on what he pled to. But I want to read the indictment here and what it does and what it doesn't say, because the media is covering this like this is all of the, the case over Charlie McGonagall. They're acting like this is the entirety of what um, went down and that he's now going to be just facing a sentencing. That is not the case. All right. So let's bring this up here. So Charles McGonagall and his co-defendant, whose name was Sergei, um, let me try this again, Shistovskov, Shistakov, <laughs> sorry, Sergei, I'm going to jack your name up, but it uh, doesn't sound like you're a great guy. Um, McGonagall, obviously former senior official. He was the uh, the special agent in charge of counterintelligence at the New York field office, dealing with, uh, with CI cases, literally in charge of running spy, anti-spy operations in New York. And, uh, and his, his comrade here, Sergei was a former Soviet and Russian diplomat going all the way back until like, I think 1979. It's actually listed here in the indictment. Um, and the story goes like this. They're buddies and he's approached. They say beginning in 2016 until his retirement, he serves as the special agent in charge of New York's uh, counterintelligence division. But before that, he was working at headquarters with our friend Steve Gray, and he was working in some other places. He worked Russian counterintelligence. He was working... Um, all the cases that were out of there. And so he had access to all of the information, classified lists of Russian oligarchs who had ties to the Kremlin, people who were being considered for sanctions, going back uh, to the 2014 international agreement that the U.S. signed on to to, uh, to ban transactions by these, by these oligarchs. Uh, and, and his buddy started working for the Soviet Union in 1979, retired uh, from the Russian Federation in 1993, ended up living in Connecticut in the United States, becoming a naturalized citizen. Some of that's kind of interesting. And then the other piece of it that I found very interesting in this uh, indictment, which I'm not hearing a whole lot about, is the fact that this guy was working as a translator in the federal court system. I'm sure he speaks great Russian and English, but we don't have any problem with a guy that had loyalties and worked on behalf of the USSR and then the Russian Federation coming and working in the U.S. court system and working for the United States Attorney's Office in the Southern and Eastern District of New York. You want to talk about penetration. This is what it looks like. Some of it is a self-induced wound. We allow these people to come in and do work. Um, I don't know how well the, the vetting process works, but apparently it doesn't work enough to keep a guy who's at the top of the counterintelligence pool for the New York field office, which is the biggest field office in the FBI. They, they refer to themselves as, as the most important. They are right you know, neck and neck with Washington field office only because Washington has all the stuff that goes on in Washington, all the uh, embassies and all the consulates are in New York and so on. So the, uh, the Russian that he's accused of uh, dealing with is Olag Deripaska. He's a Russian national. He's referred to as an oligarch, meaning a lot of wealth and cl close ties to the Russian state. I'm, I'm just scanning here through 
this indictment for you guys to understand what they actually alleged. Here's the actual sanctions we're talking about. International Emergency Economic Powers Act, the IEEPA, codified under Title 50 of the United States Code, Section 1701 through 08, and they confer authority on the president to deal with basically unusual and extraordinary threats to national security and foreign policy. They allow them to basically outlaw the movement of monies and, uh, and, and certain interests, financial interests, to people that are deemed threats to the state. They did this in 2014 under Obama when he failed to handle Ukraine and Russia properly, and they had the first um, Russian grab of Ukrainian territories. So this actually all kind of runs together in what's going on now. This was an emergency order by the president, blocked all property and interests that were uh, going to be coming within the United States and therefore within the possession and control of the United States person. Okay, this is where we're going. The United States person, in this case, Charlie McGonigal, probably also dealing with uh, his buddy, Sergey. So the executive order produced the, uh, the distribution, contribution of funds, goods, or services to, for, or by the benefit of any person whose property or interests are on the blocked list. In this case, Deripaska. All right. So that's the that's the 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 statute that's in play. That is the the allegation that he was basically in violation of. And what they do say is that he was connected to and moving money around on behalf of this this uh, this guy Sergey, which was benefiting this prohibited person. They they have all these different things. Deripaska was listed as Agent One. Sorry, he was an agent of Deripaska, not actually Deripaska specifically. But some of the stuff that's in here is pretty wild. It says in 2019, he'd already retired from the FBI, sought to retain uh, law enforcement work under sanctions. He was trying to get Deripaska delisted from that, uh, that particular sanctions document, trying to keep him from having this financial... Um, this financial block that the United States had on him. And the other thing he was trying to do is he was trying to get the FBI to investigate Deripaska's rival and find out where he had $500 million set. That seems like a real problem. Trying to use the United States federal resources and you're abusing your position inside the FBI in the counterintelligence field where you had access to see everything. He wanted to use that to go find uh, Deripaska's rival's money. So, uh, there's an engagement letter here between this law firm and Deripaska saying that he's going to pay the law firm $175,000 per month, $25,000 currently earmarked for certain other professionals. These are direct quotes. The law firm then retained McGonagall. Okay, so you see the cutout. We're talking about he's going through the law firm. End of the day, he ends up pleading guilty to this. He pleads guilty to violation of that sanction. He ends up pleading guilty to money laundering charges, which may result in up to five years in prison. But what you're hearing the media say, what you're hearing them say is that somehow this actually is the totality of the case. What we heard was this really salacious story about an Albanian former intelligence official bringing bags of cash to an FBI special agent in charge in New York. You remember that story? That's the story that we keep hearing about. That's the way the media is covering this story. And those charges have not been pled to yet. So you're getting this false story. If you'll bring up, let me see, where's the, the breaking 911? Bring up uh, topic number four, if you would. Let's bring that article up because I want you to see how it's covered and what it didn't what it didn't cover. So this is breaking911.com. This is uh, the basic story that you've heard. And what they're saying is, is that he pled guilty to money laundering connections in his 2021 agreement, uh, provided services to Deripaska, this Russian oligarch, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they say here, here's the United States attorney, Damien Williams saying, after his tenure as a high-level FBI official who supervised and participated in investigations of Russian oligarchs, Charles McGonagall has now admitted that he agreed to evade U.S. sanctions by providing services to one of those oligarchs, Olag Deripaska. This office will continue to hold those uh, hold to account those who violate U.S. sanctions for their own financial benefits. Okay, fine. Um, the special agent in charge in, in New York. The special, sorry, the uh, assistant director in charge over there says something like economic sanctions are a critical component of U.S. national security. They must be fully and fairly applied, blah, 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 blah. He tried to evade these serious criminal offense by entering a guilty plea. He's accepted responsibility for his actions. They are now committed to rigorously investigating and reporting sanctions violations. Okay, so everybody did the right thing. Everybody's an honorable person. Where do you hear in that about the $225,000 that was that was alleged to be handed over? in $85,000 increments. You hear anything about it in there? There's some backstory here about the, the, the case and the indictment. None of those things have anything to do with what is going on 
with the 225, the Albanian, and the trips to Kosovo, and so on, that we talked about on Monday. Right? None of those things are what our interview with uh, Allison Guerriero was talking about. None of them. And that's because there's a, there's a second indictment. And the other indictment is sitting in the District of District of Columbia. So let's pull that up. That is going to be topic number six, my friend. If you'll pull up that indictment, that's where the real dirty stuff comes in. But what I'm wondering is, is are we going to hear more about this or are, only, are we only going to see the, uh, the hidden materials? Are we going to try to see a uh, media cover that says, look, it's over, it's old news, he's already pled guilty, so it's going on. You, you know, We're going to hear over and over again about President Donald Trump and the things that he was involved in. But we are not going to hear probably much about this one. And in this case, this is yet another ridiculous piece. He's charged with 1,001 concealment of material facts, 1,001 false statements, and 1519 falsification of a record or document. Do you hear anything in there about uh, the receiving of money and uh, using his position for influence or going out and attempting to abuse his authorities as an FBI senior counterintelligence official? Because I don't, not in this particular piece. Let's let's go into the, uh, the the facts here because I think the facts that they record do not get reflected very often in what we um, in in what we just heard there. Count one, beginning no later than August 2017, continuing thereafter to at least May 6th of 2019. By the way, that covers the time before he retired. He was working for the FBI there. Charles McGonigal did knowingly and willingly falsely conceal or cover and cover up by trick, scheme, or device material facts, namely consistently held aspects of his relationship with person A, that he had a duty to disclose to create an actual and an apparent conflict of interest between his official FBI duties and his private interests, including that he accepted more than $225,000 from person A. They're charging him with concealing material facts, a 1001, a very, very light felony. This is the same as lying to the FBI. That's what they're going to accuse him of. What about the money? He traveled to Europe with person A, he had ongoing foreign relationships uh, with foreign nationals that you are required to disclose. There's just one count here. When we see things going after President Trump, they want to charge him for every single statement that he made as a false statement. And in this case, we have years of false statements that were put out by Charlie McGonigal. And money. And illicit travel. None of those things make any sense. And he's getting a false statement charge. He's getting a 1001 violation charge. I'm going to give you the actual uh, execution of the scheme here. This goes on to, uh, this is paragraph 18. It says, no later than August 2017, Defendant McGonigal met with person A. Again, this is the Albanian intelligence officer, uh, required and inquired whether person A could provide him with money. In September of 2017, the defendant submitted an FD-772 for upcoming unofficial travel to Albania. Now, when you work for the federal government in a national security position, doesn't matter if you work for the military, you work for a law enforcement agency, or if you work for the State Department, you have to file these forms when you want to travel, uh, particularly outside of the country. What he did on this particular uh, filing of the 772 is he failed to identify the person A would be his traveling companion. He failed to state that the lodging and accommodations would be provided free of charge, and the person that would be paying them was, in fact, connected to the Albanian government. He failed to state that he'd be going to Kosovo in addition to Albania. And he did not identify the anticipated reportable foreign contacts, including person B and some other foreign nationals with whom he had ongoing relationships. You can't maintain foreign relationships. In fact, if you move a new roommate in and you have a top secret clearance, you have to report on who that person is. You have to file that. If you marry a foreign national, if you are friends with a foreign national, if you have a business meal where you sit down, have a, uh, a nice discussion with somebody from a foreign country and you realize they are of that foreign country, you're required to disclose that under the terms. That's what a little guy like me would have had to do as, in, as someone working for the FBI. If one of my friends decided to marry a foreign national and I was going to see them in any ongoing contact, if I was going to go there, I would have to report that. And this guy is out there flying to Albania and Kosovo and not telling that the, somebody else is paying for his trip and his lodgings. Isn't that interesting? And yet, we're only dealing with false statements. These are the lightest charges you can imagine on this stuff. All right. Um, on this, again, in September, it says that he discussed working uh, for money with this individual. And person A said he could provide McGonagall little by little. We don't know. That's not a direct quote. So I don't know where they got little by little. Uh, ongoing, you continue. He ends up going there and makes arguments on behalf of a Chinese energy conglomerate. We don't know which one specifically, but the belief is it's CFS, CEFC. 
So he goes on and he's dealing with the prime minister of Albania. He's meeting with uh, uh, person B. They're talking about drilling rights. They're talking about uh, Chinese interests, trying to keep Russian companies from getting oil field licenses in Albania. All this stuff is acting on behalf of a foreign nation and representing interests that are non-American while he's on this unofficial business trip. I don't see any of that. Then we get to the substance of it. You go down to paragraph 26, October 2017, outside a restaurant, in a parked car, in New York City. Defendant McGonagall receives approximately $80,000 in cash from person A. And then later on in the fall, so somewhere in that same time frame, uh, at the person A's residence in New Jersey, he receives cash payments again in the amount of $80,065,000. I want to talk about transactional espionage money with you. There's a certain amount of money. We talked about it a little bit on Monday in the interview with Allison. There's a certain amount of money that is too much, and there's a certain amount of money that is too little to be known as transactional espionage money. I've run this by other people. This is not just coming from my time at Washington Field Office. Other people have found this to be the case. If you receive a few thousand dollars, it's not enough necessarily to sell out and be considered money that's for state secrets. People are not gonna assume risk for 5,000 or $8,000, generally speaking, that's not gonna be the case. They'd have to be pretty desperate and pretty low level. And that's not the kind of person that Charlie McGonigal was. He was a much higher level than that. Now, if you're talking about uh, probably six figures, 150, $250,000, $350,000, that's too much money for transactional espionage. The, the idea is, is that people feed a certain amount of, of secret and they get a certain amount of money that goes on and on. When you get the big payouts, that's almost always a relocation or an end of service, or this is the culmination of a relationship, and I'm demanding that final payoff because that person knows they've just assumed the maximum amount of risk. Um, this usually goes into the millions. The amount of money that Robert Hansen is accused of receiving, uh, this is obviously in 1985 money to 2000, is like $1.5 million total. So very, very low, just entering into that seven-figure amount. This is transactional dollars, 50 and 60, $80,000 at a time. This was the kind of money that Hansen was seeing. Adjusted for inflation, you bump it up, 80, 90, $100,000, right around that, that, that amount of money. That's transactional espionage money. That's what we would expect to see someone who is trading US secrets, not influence of their position, using their position to be able to, uh, to, to exploit the secrets that they had access to. And what we are not seeing are any charges along that line for Charlie McGonigal. And a five-year sentence, remember, Robert Hansen died in prison. He was convicted in the early 2000s, and he died in prison. I think he died this year, but if not, it was late last year. That's a pretty new story. We actually have Robert Hansen die in prison. I think I actually have it up here. Yep, this is actually from this year. June June 5th is when it was reported. That uh, You can actually bring that up. That is topic number three, Ryan. So you can see he died in June of this year in prison, 79 years old, apparently very fat and very unhappy, a very disgraced human being who spent 20 years in prison. That's Robert Hansen's story. And obviously people died because of what he was doing. And that may be the case, a slight differential between what we're talking about here. But the idea that you would use your position in order to, to make this, this, uh, you know, this kind of money that should be really troubling to everybody. It also tells you what kind of a clown game is going on over at the FBI, that they didn't sniff this guy out. And honestly, the fact that Hansen was doing this from 1985 until 2001 should make you very concerned that they were allowing this stuff to go on all the way through the fall of the Soviet Union. If you'll bring up topic number 13 for me, I want to discuss another little case here, folks. This is a case that I actually ended up working on. This is over now. It's, uh, it's over and done with. It says former State Department employee sentenced for conspiring with Chinese agents. I did uh, limited work on this. I was part of the search warrant that searched the, the house of Candace Claiborne. She worked for the State Department, as I understood it. She was like a secretarial type, but had also done some time overseas. And she was involved in receiving money, favors, gifts, and favorable consideration by the Chinese Communist Party for things that she was doing on behalf of them. She had a low level, you know, she had the same clearance, but she was a low level employee regarding that. And one of the things that I had to do was I actually translated the entirety uh, sorry, not translated, transcribed the entirety of a false flag operation that was done. They ran an undercover to her house, banged on the door, pretended to be a Chinese person that was friends with the people that were supposedly the Chinese agents that were working with her. And she invited this person right in. We had no idea that was going to happen. So this person was wired up and ended up talking. She ended up giving him all kinds of information. This, the crazy stuff about this story was, and she ended up getting 40 months in prison. So she's probably, 
It's 2019. She's probably right on the edge of getting out now. She may have gotten out for early release. So she may have already been released for this. She was entrusted with privileged information, like all U.S. government employees. She had that secret clearance, the top secret clearance, rather, um, and had access to printers and things like that. She chose to betray the American trust. And, uh, you know, the accountability was basically 40 months. Now, she was nowhere nearly as highly placed as someone like, like our buddy um, Charlie McGonagall. But what she did have was a son who got admission into college. Um, he was homosexual and got himself involved in uh, some really dangerous activities, uh, sexual activities overseas. And so he was facing uh, indictment overseas and the Chinese let him slide specifically because of this connection, because of the, um, the relationship that she had developed with them. So they actually use that over her. And when you're compromised, the first thing that's uh, trouble, Ryan, are we still doing that? We still have the press release up? Looks yeah, like we I'm do. You want it up? Yeah, you can throw it down. Um, the, the thing about being compromised is this. Once that someone gives you money, I want you to think about this. You've received money, cash. Maybe that's deniable at some point. As that goes on, they now probably have a documentation of it. We've heard about this in the 1023 with the Biden administration, the idea that uh, these people were buying off Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, and they kept a record of it. You don't want to give money like cash as a business over to someone and not be able to get the thing that you paid for. And that's the problem with cash. It's gone unless you documented that meeting, unless you recorded it, unless you have something that will show what was going on, whether they be emails, whether they be text messages, phone calls, and so on, saying that you got the thing you want. The leverage that they had in, in this case of this uh, this woman who was working on behalf of the Chinese was that her son was facing prosecution and he was basically stuck overseas until she did what they wanted. They let her go. But then they always know that about her and they can always go back and show the paper trail to the U.S. government so they can use that to further exploit you. Once you allow yourself, you open the door up to exploitation, then you are always open to exploitation. This is what the concern should be about Charles McGonagall. And it's a biblical piece. People who can be trusted in small matters can be trusted in great matters. People who are not trustworthy in small matters also not trustworthy in great matters. So we know that this guy was willing to take money, that he was willing to compromise his ethics, that he was willing to go and work against U.S. interests, that he was willing to lie to his own agency, falsify forms. So then the question should always be, what else was out there? And if you think that there was this like very competent um, investigation, you, you remember how big Hansen was? There were two big spies that were caught, Alter James and Robert Hansen. They had a big trial and they were sentenced for the rest of their lives. That was it. Life in prison. You don't get out. There was treasonous behavior and they were prosecuted under the Espionage Act. I don't see anything mentioned about that in this case. And yet he was using his official position. He was using his ability to gather information at the highest level of the, the counterintelligence sphere. You don't even have to ask at that level. Like they don't need need to know. They're not worried about what keystrokes someone like Kyle Serafin or Garrett O'Boyle or Steve Friend is doing. When we go and look at a case, even if it's peripherally related to what we're going, uh, we're working on, there's a there's going to be a record of it. We may have to answer questions. Hey, saw you were in this file. Why? Why were you doing that? As the as the chief guy in the New York field office running the counterintelligence division, that's not coming up. You're the guy asking the questions. You're not the guy getting asked questions. And the FBI is not prepared to be able to handle these kind of things. This is the highest level person who has been accused of betraying the oath and they're sweeping it under the rug like it's no big deal. 1,001 charges. And where's the FARA? We're hearing a lot about this and this is going to be relevant because tomorrow, hopefully we have the interview with our, um, with our undisclosed guest. I don't need to have any more technical difficulties with our stream. But FARA violation is something they're holding over the heads of people like Michael Flynn, unregistered foreign agent. And we're hearing a little bit about it in Hunter Biden, but we're not hearing it in a big way. How come he's not being charged with Farah if they're willing to go after people on the conservative side? And we're with a Charlie McGonagall. He was acting as an unregistered foreign agent. Did he file fair paperwork? They love that charge right now. They're happy to levy it against people. And yet, we're not seeing that. We're not seeing uh, allegations of espionage. And we're seeing money that looks an awful lot like transactional espionage. I'm not the only person that thinks this. Steve Gray was wondering about it. Allison uh, from Monday's interview was also talking about it briefly. These are legitimate, serious, and ongoing concerns. You have to wonder why this guy is getting the pass. And then we'll contrast it because we always have to. Let's contrast it with what's been going on in the Trump indictments. Four now indictments. I think there's like 90 counts going on. We pull up topic number 11 for me. Uh, we, this, is, this is MSNBC. They're not just obsessed with Trump 
um, being indicted. They're obsessed with Fox News being obsessed with Trump. I just pulled this graphic up. I, this was just me looking this morning for background research. Fox News, Trump, Stockholm syndrome is in full effect after his fourth indictment. That was the lead story on there. They can't get enough. Then you look down, Trump lovers rage over Fox debate restrictions from an old debate in 2016. Fox News is getting pummeled by former evangelists and it could get worse. They love talking about Fox. Fox is always talking about Trump. So we are going to just do this nonsense where we're gonna bring up one guy's story and we're not gonna talk about something that is really a legitimate betrayal of the country. If anybody thinks that the conspiracy to defraud American voters from an election that he ended up not getting into the presidency for is the biggest crime and scandal, I think you're a crazy person. You don't have to love Donald Trump to look at the, the unfairness that is being waged against the guy. And in the meantime, why is the media running top cover for the FBI? And why are we not hearing about a third person now being shot in seven days? Shouldn't that be a breaking story everywhere? How is it that they just sweep this stuff under and they don't talk about it? We're gonna make sure that people are talking about it. I'm gonna make sure that we share this. And then the, and the other piece of it is, is that they're running people overseas, which we'll be talking about tomorrow. And that, I don't wanna tease it out too far because I wanna make sure this thing actually does happen. The, uh, the interesting thing with all of the stuff in Trump's indictments is that they're running both federal charges and state charges. The obvious uh, danger of a uh, federal indictment for them is that if he actually wins, he could pardon himself, right? The state charges are sort of insurance against that. And so you're seeing all this breathless talk in the media about how they can do that. If we can bring up, let's see here, the Mark Meadows situation. What was that from? That's uh, going to be under topic number, topic number seven, if you would, Ryan. This is uh, coming from ABC News today. Um, they actually just released this yesterday. Mark Meadows is seeking to move his case, the indictment against him, from Fulton County, which was in the Atlanta case here, the, the sort of prosecutor that wants to be a, a budget rate Cardi B. The uh, Fulton County election case, they want to move it into federal court. And there's some really interesting implications for this. And obviously, I think Trump's going to probably want to do the same thing. If they can get all these things out in the open and you know they'll deal with the, the, the uh, present presentation, the arraignment, and so on, they're going to want to try to move venue. So this, this article says, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows officially filed on Tuesday to move the case brought against him by the Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, again, our, our friend, the budget, Cardi B, into federal court just a day after he was indicted along with the federal uh, with Trump, pre President Trump and 17 others on charges of attempting to overturn the election. So 19 different people. Theoretically, they could move all these into federal court. And so what is the argument here? Uh, his attorney says, Mr. Meadows, nothing he is alleged to have done is criminal per se. He's arranging White House meetings. He is uh, conducting state officials or contacting them on behalf of the president. He is visiting a state government building, setting up phone calls with the president, all things you would expect a chief of staff for the president of the United States of America to do. Those are all things that would make sense. And so why would you do this? Here's what he's saying. This is precisely the kind of state interference in a federal official's duties that the supremacy clause of the United States Constitution prohibits. And that removal, uh, and and the removal statute shields against this. So, the supremacy clause is the argument. They do this in actual uh, in in cases where federal agents are involved in a shooting and then charged locally with murder. Many people are never going to be familiar with this, the concept of qualified immunity. But if you were to go and be a federal agent, whether you be ATF or DEA or FBI or you name it or HSI or so on, and you carry a gun for a living and you end up having to shoot somebody. What they can do is they can actually charge you locally with murder or homicide of some kind, right? Second degree, first degree, third degree. And they can do that. And the federal government can petition to pull that into federal courts. They change the venue and then they can dismiss it under the United States attorney saying that you had qualified immunity, but you might otherwise face state charges. So there is a role for that. And what you would basically argue is that they were doing their duty as federal officials. One of the most uh, sort of Interesting versions of this happened when I, it was either Border Patrol or somebody under DHS was engaged in a surveillance from the border. If you listen to our Victor Avila article or our, our interview, rather, you heard that he was talking about the functional equivalence of the border as long as you can maintain eyes on somebody that is doing smuggling or drug trafficking or gun running or whatever. And so they had the surveillance team following someone from Tijuana up the, the California highway system away from the Mexican border. And when you're running surveillance, sometimes you're going to be running directly behind somebody. Obviously, there's going to have someone who's going to have an eye on them. But oftentimes, what you'll do is you'll run in parallel. And you'll parallel these people on a second road that goes the same direction. And in California, there are multiple northbound highways, some of which are smaller than others. I think the person was northbound on the five doing a standard pursuit. And then somebody was on one of the parallel routes, which I cannot remember off the top of my head. But there's several of them. 
rolling at a very, very high rate of speed, 100 miles an hour plus, and hit somebody in a T-bone collision that pulled out into traffic. The person was correct in turning. The, uh, the agent was driving at a very, very high rate of speed, ended up killing the person that they T-boned. And the, the state wanted to go after this agent for doing the job that they were supposed to be doing. Surveillance is inherently dangerous when you drive like this. And what happened was it was scoped under the federal uh, employment statute. They pulled this into federal courts, said this person was operating in their duty and therefore had qualified immunity for the, the homicide, which would have been negligent homicide or reckless endangerment or whatever, that the state was trying to charge. And that person was not uh, able to be charged in the state system. This happens all the time. And the argument is the supremacy clause, which I think I have the actual supremacy clause so you guys can see it. Pull up um, topic nine, if you would. I think that's going to be it. Topic nine is going to give you guys kind of a taste. Here we go. So the supremacy clause is article four, paragraph two of the United States Constitution, commonly referred to as the supremacy clause. It establishes that the federal constitution and federal law more generally take precedent over state laws, even the state constitution. It prohibits the states from interfering with the federal government's exercise of constitutional powers and from assuming any functions that are exclusively entrusted to the federal government. In other words, if somebody is executing their duties under federal law as a federal official, then they are not beholden to anything that goes on with the state outlaws. One of the good examples of this is if you were going and doing a recording of someone that you had the authorization to do as a federal government employee, even though there may be a two-party consent requirement in the state you're in for recording, in other words, I know and you know that I'm recording, I can still do a one-party consent or a no-party consent if I have the right warrants because the supremacy law allows me to move beyond what the state allows. In this case, it doesn't allow the federal government to review or veto state laws before they take effect. It simply allows them to ignore them, and then they have case precedent that will allow them to go beyond that. Uh, McCullough versus Maryland was the story where this happened. There were two solicitors that were going and making an argument, uh, Daniel Webster on behalf of the federal government and Martin Luther on behalf of the state of Maryland. And this is where they actually established this under the Marshall Court. This is a very old piece of case law that says the federal government has the ability to do this sort of thing. And what we have in the case of a uh, of trying to pull these things away is, the, is sort of this constitutional argument. There's a lot of constitutional arguments that are going to come up with the Trump indictment, and this is one of them. Can you, in fact, bring this under federal prosecution and then make the constitutional arguments that this person was acting within the scope of their job? The problem is, is that we have a weaponized DOJ and a Biden administration that's going to actually argue against that. And what you may have heard yesterday is that Fannie Willis was asked very directly and point blank, are you working with the special counsel, Jack Smith, who brought the indictments in Florida and in the District of DC, the federal indictments. And she sort of demurred. She refused to answer such things. Uh, this is a real problem, I would say. This is a problem that allows us to move into a space where, you know, what, what, do, you, what do you do when you start pitting a federal government that is supposed to be somewhat adversarial in this case, that is supposed to be able to preserve the constitution and it is not agreeing to its specific um, responsibilities under there. Uh, so this is this isn't the ongoing fight that we are dealing with, and it continues on. I want to play this uh, this video that we put up. This is something we talk about, uh, just like sort of the unhinged left and sort of the way that things work. This is uh, video number one, if you would, um, coming from. It's coming from CNN. This is a former Republican elected official in Georgia, and what you're seeing is that unified. You know, I always ask, are, are the rhinos the real Republicans? Are they the ones that are actually uh, emphasizing it? There was so much insanity about Donald Trump getting into office that it's almost impossible to remember all of it. So we're going to refresh your memory a little bit here. And they're showing that even though the Republican Party should be united around the guy who is the forerunner in the primary, there's this concerted effort to move it. And whenever you bring a Republican on CNN, we know that something is not on the up and up. If you want to roll video clip number one for me, Ryan. This feels different. Uh, you know what Donald Trump did is did his most damage in Georgia. Uh, he sucked the soul out of the Republican Party here. Uh, he's sucked the morality out of the Republican Party, the fiscal responsibility out of the Republican Party. He's he, he sucked our winning percentage out of the Republican Party. He's taken everything from us and it is our turn to take it back. Right. It's our turn to win elections based on the policies that we think we're better on. This is the prime spot for us to take Joe Biden to the woodshed and call him out for not running the border right, not protecting our communities, not putting our best foot forward internationally. These are our moments in time. But if we make this about the three ring circus of Donald Trump, we will lose, lose and lose again. You make a good point that. The 
<laughs> you make a good point. When CNN agrees with you that we need to get rid of Donald Trump, that Donald Trump is the very, very bad man, he's the problem that we have to deal with, uh, you know you might be on the wrong side. Donald Trump has been indicted four times, two state and two federal. And rather than see the party rally around and say, this is a banana republic, this is not okay, they're able to find plenty of people who look nice in a suit and speak articulately that could be marched out in front of a CNN audience and say, look, we're, we're not the crazy people here. Um, it's Donald Trump with the three-ring circus that he's running. It's the man that uh, we've been basically fighting tooth and nail against since 2015, that we've been shrieking that the sky would fall, that we are going to be uh, dealing with an unprecedented, uh, unacceptable moving uh, you know, political environment in the United States, that it's racist and it's sexist and it's homophobic and it's bigoted. And he's now been accused credibly of sexual assault, even though the lady who, who was speaking about the sexual assault there is nuts, right? This guy, this lady, uh, Jean Carroll, whatever her name is, that was in New York. And, and now they're gonna, you know, the fact that there was a civil finding against Trump is enough for them to act trot out their their stories. Meanwhile, how about the credible allegations against Joe Biden that we hadn't decided to just bury and quash? More about that at the end of this week as we move forward. May have some very interesting information, stories that you are not totally familiar with, certainly not uh, from the firsthand source. But we're going to be bringing you some, some questions about, well, well, why is it they, they want to paint this brush so broadly? Why do they have to keep that focus specifically on there? I've got a video that we're gonna play for a second. Uh, Ryan had to step away for just a moment. We got a, a video that we're gonna play that's gonna remind you of just how unhinged and how scared, and moreover, the things that are going on in Michigan right now, the electors that are being uh, prosecuted for the false slate of electors, which is essentially a, a faithless electors um, case, right? These are people that they thought were going to basically vote against what the state said. That, that hadn't been settled by the time that Michigan sent these things or that people decided to show up and run against them. The, the case, the Supreme Court case, was actually settled in uh, 2020, and it was the result of a case brought, Chiaflo versus Washington, the so-called faithless elector case. We brought this up in the constitutional uh, discussion of whether or not Trump would be able to make this argument, um, that, that in fact, it hadn't even been settled yet. They were trying to figure out whether or not the, electors going from the, what do they call it? The, the electoral college could vote against the recommendations of their party. They, they wanted to, to know, can we send electors and can those electors actually make up their own mind? That wasn't settled law under the Supreme Court, which does get to have that judicial review process that didn't actually get settled until, until 2020. So I want you to step back to 2016 and remember just how unhinged these people have been. If we'll play video clip number two, I saw this uh, trending again. I think Matt Couch, I'm going to give a little hat tip here. Matt Couch from um, Red Voice Media was, was scrolling this across his Twitter feed. And when I watched it, I went, oh my God, I forget somehow how crazy things have been for the last eight years, how unhinged we've seen this. So let's watch this little quick video clip. And just remember, first of all, it's clown-like because we can see how silly these people are. But more importantly... Look at what they were asking to happen. Is this not the insurrection that they were all uh, running against? Clip number two. Republican members of the Electoral College, this message is for you. As you know, our founding fathers built the Electoral College to safeguard the American people from the dangers of a demagogue and to ensure that the presidency only goes to someone who is to an eminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications. An eminent degree. Someone who is highly qualified for the job. The Electoral College was created specifically to prevent an unfit candidate from becoming president. There are 538 members of the Electoral College. You and just 36 other conscientious Republican electors can make a difference by voting your conscience on December 19th and thereby shaping the future of our nation. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. As you know, the Constitution gives electors the right to vote for any eligible person. Any False. eligible person, no matter which party they belong to. But it should certainly be someone you consider especially competent. Especially competent to serve as President of the United States of America. By voting your conscience, you and other brave Republican electors can give the House of Representatives the option to select a qualified candidate for the presidency. 
I stand with you. I stand with you. I stand with you. I stand with you in support and solidarity with conservatives, independents, and liberals. And all citizens of the United States. They stand with you, just letting you know. Also, the Constitution does not say that they can vote for any qualified person. Did you notice that they quoted the Federalist Papers, by the way, and acted like that was somehow law? The Federalist Papers were arguments on behalf of the Constitution and the Federalist system. Uh, they suddenly like federalism. <laughs> Leftists suddenly like federalism whenever it uh, backs their purposes and uh, de deny elections whenever it suits their purposes. I don't know who half those people were, but Deborah Messing, the woman from Will and Grace, that's just so sorry-eyed right there about the idea of it. Look how sorrowful and, and somber and serious these people are about how bad Donald Trump was going to be. That was 2016. That was a group called Unite for America. I went and looked for their page and they actually have a funny little thing. They're just like a bunch of nonsense. Nobody responds to it. I don't know if it's dark money or where it comes from or who's funding it, but um, it, it does tell you that the, the narrative being pushed is, is totally ridiculous. We're going to pull up our, our last topic here, kind of go out on kind of a, a silly note because everything else seems so sil uh, screwed up and, and stressful. How about this one right here from The Guardian? My wife sent me this and she started laughing. I guess Gavin McGinnis was highlighting it, talking about the, uh, the beta male cabal this is from a guy named James Ball. It's unrelated to anything else we've been talking about here, but it does tell you um, how scared they are of people thinking on their own and coming up with ideas that are contrary to the mainstream media. It says, everything you've been told is a lie inside the wellness to fascism pipeline. A guy named James Ball. I pulled up this guy's this profile picture last night. My wife and I are sitting in bed and looking at it, and I go, I don't know if that's a dude. I don't know if that's a female. I don't know what that is. Is that a, a transgender person? Uh, is that a male represent you know female representing as a male it's all really silly and and so uh, come to the conclusion since there's no significant amount of work talking about uh, his brave and and courageous transition that i assume that this is actually a regular dude with a little pink banner behind him who has incredibly effeminate features and a soft doughy body who is really scared that people who are interested in meditation and people who are into doing yoga and some other things are going from namaste to nah, I don't think I trust the government. This is, this is apparently the real scary thing. This actually goes right in line with, with some of these pieces that you've seen out there that say there is a, a direct connection between working out and like right-wing extremism and, you know, being a gym rat can turn you into a fascist and all the other stuff. They literally say that there is a wellness to fascism pipeline. And essentially what it came down to is a bunch of people who are interested in meditation and yoga and uh, Reiki and you take your pick of like sort of traditionally left leaning um, self-help and practices, these sort of spiritual but non-religious practices have found themselves doing something that everybody else did too, because this is a universal thing. There is a universal distrust of government institutions to include the media right now. And I think what we talked about touches on a lot of that. They are not sharing with you the full narrative. They're not sharing with you the information that you might need to make an intelligent decision. They're trying to spoon feed you a government line of garbage. So this guy is super worried that there's a radicalization of nice middle-class hippie-ish groups turning into fascists because they are now looking around going, man, is there child trafficking going on? And apparently that's uh, believing in an actual child trafficking, which totally happens the movement of children illegally for work and for sex is now a right-wing lunatic position, even though it's documented by federal law enforcement cases. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's the world we're going to live in. These people are going to just go out there. You're, the idea that you would say, hey, maybe the election wasn't legit. Hey, maybe I don't want to get a COVID vaccine because I believe in other wellnesses. What's funny is when I was growing up, the people that didn't want to get vaccines of any kind, they were not getting um, all the childhood vaccinations, MMR, they weren't getting smallpox and all that. They were all on the political left. They were like crunchy, lib, kind of woo-woo types, right? They were all leftists. They were uber-lib, hippie types. And now that's considered to be a right-wing, fascist, dangerous white supremacy thing. How funny when the common cause happens for people who just basically look at the government and go, mm, I don't think we trust you. That should be just about anybody who's worked in the federal government. It should be just about anybody who served in the military that looks and sees the inefficiencies and the ineffectiveness. That doesn't mean that you don't love the country, and it doesn't mean that your oath is gone. It means that the implements and the mechanisms for executing these types of things are not inherently trustworthy because you've seen how the sausage is made, and it's not made well.
It's made of a bunch of corrupt and ultimately individually greedy people, the Charles McGonagall types who are out there looking, how can I use this position to enrich myself? How can I tell people how great I am and use that? And, and at the end of the day, we've had a couple of people from the, the retired agent community. And when I say we, I mean the suspendables, the Garrett Boyles, the Marcus Allens, the uh, you know producer Phil's, the Steve friends. We all look around and go, where is the massive outcry of these people? And ultimately what we've seen is that people who are collecting a government pension are scared to speak out for fear of losing that government pension. Uh, Phil said something on True Social the other day. He said that uh, employees of the federal government are bribed every two week with an unlimited supply of federal reserve notes. You guys may have seen that. And he's exactly correct. There is a tremendous fear that even though even though you think there are things that are going on wrong and you have probably credible evidence and experience and anecdotal time of all the different little minor corruptions that have gone on and it leads to a bigger narrative. Those people are not speaking out. Why? Because they're afraid they're going to lose that pension that comes from OPM. They're afraid that they will find themselves PNG'd from the government circle and they will no longer be able to go out there and get lucrative jobs. They will no longer go out there and sell the influence they had to their prior employer and say how great they are. Little do they know that this uh, wellness to fascist pipeline is actually a pretty big movement of people on the left and on the right. And it's a lot of people that are looking and saying, if you want credibility, come out, blow the whistle, come out and say, give credible allegations of, of wrongdoing, talk about what is screwed up. But the fear is, is that you'll be destitute. And the government, as my buddy Gerardo Boyle said so clearly, is more than happy to crush you for doing such things. Let's shut that down here. We got a big interview coming up this afternoon, which I am very excited to share with you tomorrow. I'm not going to say any more about it other than you're not going to want to miss tomorrow's show. I talked to Miranda Devine about it on text messages last night, and she was like, oh man, I'm in for that. Um, there is going to be, we're going to shake some things up, I think. And I'm definitely going to have an FBI investigation open into me on the counterintelligence front if I don't have one already, simply for engaging in this interview. So we'll let, let it happen. Let it be. We don't shy away from things like that. We are not scared of the FBI here. We've seen how the sausage is made, and it is made by people who are less competent than many of you think. Doesn't mean they can't shoot you dead in your house. Doesn't mean that doesn't wake me up in the middle of the night sometimes and have me sitting on my couch looking out the window. But it's not a thing that we can live in fear of because the government should not lead us to a position of fear. We can't accept it. It's totally unacceptable. And uh, as many of you know, our hashtag, are you suspendable? Hashtag, are you suspendable? Is how we say that. You ask your, your neighbors and your friends, people who are following you anywhere on social media, let them know. It's time. You have to be suspendable. All right, folks, you've been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Despite technical difficulties, streamed live from Liberty Hill, Texas, and we do want to thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking around. Looked like there were, like, uh, what, 600-plus of you that made it over to the second stream, despite a false start and some, we'll say, very curious uh, feed issues that we were able to shut down the feed and restart it and, and change keys, and it managed to work. So maybe that was just... What happens on Rumble when you try to schedule out your, your thing in advance? Or maybe when you schedule a feed that is called counterintelligence with pictures of former FBI agents, uh, the FBI doesn't look kindly on it. We'll find out. Uh, or maybe we never will. That's the way it goes. The show will continue. It continues to grow. We have reached 650 five-star reviews on Apple as we requested. Thanks so much for coming through, folks. Let's get it up to 700. Our goal is 1,000 by the end of the year. This was uh, Producer Phil's dream for this show. We are well on track to making that happen. Leave us a five-star review on Apple. You can scroll right down and you click on it. If you have an iPhone, you can click through it. If you were on a Macintosh, you can click through it. You can see one just like this one. This is coming from, who is this coming from? This is coming from Pap. One, two, one, three, one, nine. I don't know what those numbers mean. It says, Kyle is on fire. I saw you first on Dan Bongino. You're on fire today, and I appreciate your call to action. This must have been from Wednesday of last week. So one week old now. FBI SWAT teams killed someone in Albuquerque yesterday. Another uh, in Utah today. The FBI is so corrupt is beyond hope. Thank you for all you do for us. I hope you, Steve Friend, and all the other suspendables keep up the good work. We'll keep doing it. You keep doing it. Pap, thanks for that review. And of course, as we found out today, no details yet but another person killed in Memphis by FBI SWAT. So ongoing killing. It's just the, this is, that's far too frequent in a seven day period. That's actually the most I've ever heard of since I started paying attention to the FBI, which was probably in 2014, 2015, as I was making my applications in. Very scary stuff. We'll say thank you to, uh, to your five-star review. Send us another one. Uh, anybody out there that wants to send it and have it read, we will read them on the show. And we want to say thanks to Ryan Matta, who made it in today and struggled through our technical difficulties. Follow him on Twitter at 
Ryan Matta Media, M-A-T-T-A. Ryan has some really interesting stuff from down on the border. I know he's been going through terabytes of data that he's going to be sharing with you. So you guys will be seeing that. And you can also catch him on his LFA TV show, which is called Matta of Fact. You'll find that at two o'clock Eastern time on Rumble as well. Go ahead and look for Ryan Matta Media on Twitter or follow him here on LFA TV. You can find him on that uh, that Rumble channel. Folks, like this channel as you're leaving. Please scroll on down. Make sure that uh, thumb is green and it says that you enjoyed what you saw today. Share the link if you want to see, uh, see this channel continue to grow. And uh, we do really appreciate all of your subscriptions. We are adding some custom emojis for all the subscribers that are actually available in the live chat, as you guys discovered today when you go to play with those things. So by all means, uh, subscribe to the channel. And we will see you again tomorrow, probably with some pretty groundbreaking stuff. I'm very much excited about it. Do not miss tomorrow's show. We will try to troubleshoot it ahead of time. And uh, we'll see you then. Thanks for listening to the Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live weekdays on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter, Truth Social, and Instagram at Kyle Serafin.